0: This week, The Spectator will surpass the 100,000 subscribers mark for the first time in its long history. Subscribe today and you could be our 100,000 subscriber. If you are, you'll win a prize worth £5,000, including a year's supply of Paul Roger champagne and tickets to our famous summer party, covid guidelines allowing but also send all new subscribers this week a commemorative tote bag subscribe today and you can get your first month free at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash milestone
1: hello and welcome to the edition podcast the spectators weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important pieces in the magazine with the writers behind them i'm nara prendergast First, we look at the concept of vaccine passports and ask what it means for our return to freedom. Next, we go to Germany, where Russia's influence on the nation is beginning to cause alarm across the Atlantic. And to finish, we'll have a king and a queen of the game join us to talk about chess. With so-called vaccine passports now becoming a reality in multiple European nations the question of how they will be implemented and what they mean for our freedom is becoming increasingly pressing. In this week's cover piece, I ask, where could these vaccine passports lead and should we be concerned? I'm now joined by Lewis James Davis to discuss the prospect of vaccine passports. Lewis, you are the CEO of VST Enterprises, a vHealth, Passports company. Can you start by telling us what exactly is a health passport and whether you think that they can give us back our freedoms after a year of various lockdowns?
2: Uh, So a health passport is something that allows you to prove your health at the time that your last test was taken. Uh, So our health passport is uh, orientated around the V code which is a, a secure identifier that we've created at VST Enterprises. So a V-code is up to 10 seconds faster. You can scan it outside of that safe distance of two meters and it's secure end-to-end. Uh, the benefit of our V-code and V-health passport is the fact that you can share different information with different people. So the V-code could display your health passport to one person when it could be a health passport and a ticket to another.
1: Right. And and is this something that is so it's already being used at the moment? Do you think this is something that could be soon used, your your technology could soon be used for the covid vaccine
2: i would assume so because we're talking to other countries uh, where they're already pushing the v health passport as the way to record the vaccine and also healthcare so we are a global company we're working with airlines we're working with maritime companies and we're we're the only company that could bridge across all industries and not just for travel but for personal use when restaurants etc open back up
1: this is an interesting point because one of the things the government has been keen to kind of make clear is that at the moment it's just for international travel really that they would be looking at it but but do you think we could foresee a situation fairly soon where to get into a restaurant or a bar or cinema you'd be asked for your the health passport?
2: Yeah so all of our conversations are, have been for a purpose so at the very beginning of Covid we had a, a fans back campaign trying to get people back into stadia And then we've got a fit to fly campaign, back to school campaign, stay at work, etc. And the most recent one we'll be launching is back to sea uh, for the cruise ships to get back online. And in America, etc., they're looking at this to get people back onto campuses and universities. But they are also talking about sports events and restaurants too.
1: Thank you, Lewis. And I'm now joined by the tech journalist, James Ball, to discuss what a vaccine passport rollout might look like. James, in this week's cover piece, I look at what the government are up to right now with the funding for the vaccine passports. And it looks as if effectively what they're doing is getting the funding going so that the technology is there for anyone who might require it. Do you think that that seems to be the case?
3: I I think you were pretty convincing in your piece, to be honest. Um, it It does seem to be that that's happening. And I don't think that's necessarily something nefarious. We've sort of constantly complained through this crisis that the government comes up with an idea several months after everyone else and then doesn't have any infrastructure in place. We're seeing that with quarantining. you know. Somehow it turns out no one had ever done a plan for how to book up the hotels and sort that out. So they could argue this is just them making sure if they choose to implement this, there's infrastructure in place. I've got to say it mystifies me a little bit in that, if it is just for travelling between countries and enabling that if other countries want to require it, like Greece apparently will, we already have countries with vaccine requirements that don't need these huge government databases and don't need these sorts of things. If you need to prove you've got a yellow fever vaccination, your GP writes a note saying that. You know, if we've trusted that system for decades, why we suddenly need some high-tech version does start to feel like, you know, a bit more state encroachment for a scheme we have no idea will work and that we haven't really ever had a debate about.
1: Well, it does seem as though debate is not necessarily forthcoming and and I wonder if it's because people are sort of a bit nervous about being accused of, you know, being anti-vax or wanting to kind of, you know, put people's lives at risk. But, I mean, do do you think vaccine passports... Are a slippery slope and part of a surveillance state, or are they just something? Are they kind of the next step of a passport? And we actually we shouldn't be that worried about them. I
3: I tend to worry about them. I I would say first that if you offered me this vaccine right now, I would take it. I want to be vaccinated wildly. I am very pro it and think it's a great achievement. And I'm also not one of these people who think. We should lock down until we are a hundred percent certain that not a single bat anywhere in the world has corona. We're gonna have to do things to reopen. We're gonna have to balance. And so I can see why people are drawn to something that makes it look easier to reopen. But we don't want to spook people into thinking that if they refuse a vaccine because they're worried, because they've got sort of conscientious reasons, because we haven't persuaded them to trust it, that they'll be forced to if they want to be able to go back to normal life. That feels to me like it could actually undermine trust in a vaccine. But also, I don't like the idea that the government starts making it okay for countries to demand news on your health status or immunities or for pubs to do that or for airlines. You know, we've, I think a lot of us have probably watched It's a Sin recently and been reminded just how awful the stigma around HIV and AIDS was. We've spent decades getting rid of requirements for people to declare HIV status and so on and push health back to the private sort of matter. I don't feel like this is a forward step in doing that. But as well, I don't think we know if these will work.
1: Well, exactly. It was that's funny you say, mention it's a thing because actually I'd been watching that whilst I was researching and writing this piece, and it, and it did it sort of struck me that society tends not to deal with people who have contagious diseases, particularly particularly benevolently. <laughs> um, and I that's I think what what worries me is that once this technology is in place, you know, where's it, where's it going to lead? I mean, I, I what seems to be the case at the moment as it's obviously being presented as well this will just be a way to ensure global travel can get up and running again and, and tony blair has been a big advocate of that but do you think i mean if you know can you foresee a situation where actually this does start to be used for getting access to as you say a, a pub or you know a club or whatever it is you will have to sort of flash your immunity id
3: I mean, I I don't see where the moral reasoning comes in that says it's okay to check someone's vaccination status before they board a plane, but not before they board a train or sit indoors at a pub. I'm not sure why one of those, you know, I could make some legalistic distinctions, but in actual practical and ethical terms, they start to feel very similar. And I think once you introduced them for one thing and, you know, allowed some private businesses in the form of airlines to do it, well, you know, can the first class lounge ask to see your vaccine passport then? Well, okay, a first class lounge is a bar. So why can a bar only do it if it's in an airport? It's clear to see that it could become required for society. And I think we haven't really unpicked some of the practical problems on that, you know, Neither one of us is over 70 and so odds on we're not going to get vaccinated for a while. And people with that low personal risk of corona have accepted lots and lots of restrictions on their own life and, you know, lots of hardship from lockdown and accepted being low down on the list for a rationed vaccine. If that vaccine suddenly becomes your key to being able to perhaps go to work, but also have some social life, be able to date, be able to participate in society again, and you're expected to patiently wait at the back of the queue. That feels quite immoral. And it feels even worse if we look internationally, where rich countries have hogged the vaccine. You know, should a 55-year-old businessman from the UK really be allowed to fly wherever he wants and do deals, whereas someone from a poorer country that has not been able to get the amazing vaccine access we have, can't fly and loses all his business. That seems grotesquely unfair. And, you know, I think he would have quite a legitimate grievance. My last worry is is that we've got a a virus that's mutating a lot and might need quite a lot of boosters and might need different mixes. And so to start suggesting a vaccine passport suggests you get your two jabs, your vaccine's done, you know a a digital stamp on your passport and you're safe i'm not sure that's going to be the world that we're going to live in for the next few years
1: and what about security and all this i mean i I didn't really actually talk about it much in the piece but could you see a situation where all this information is being given to all these apps that are being developed and we actually would have no idea where that information was being held or or would data protection laws offer some protection
3: i mean you've Got to assume that you know health data traditionally is regarded as the highest level of sort of data under the Data Protection Act, under GDPR, is considered very, very sensitive. And so the law and the regulations would require it to be handled very well. But we know that no system's unhackable. We know that anything can be broken into and abused. And if building this system joins up NHS records with broader data sets, that's going to make them more vulnerable. I don't think many of us would regard our vaccine status as ultra-sensitive, terrifying information. But if it starts joining up to your other health records, that could get quite sensitive. And especially, you know, even if there's just hints of if you're 25 and have been vaccinated this week... That's a sign that you've got quite a serious underlying health condition that you might regard as quite private and not want to discuss, and so even quite innocuous looking health information can reveal like huge amounts under the surface.
1: Mm. And I mean, just finally, what what do you think is the alternative? I mean, it feels almost as if this is all kind of just about to be brought in, and we're just sort of waiting for you know, this brilliant summer that Matt Hancock has promised us if we've all had the jab. Do you think there's an alternative at this stage?
3: I think certainly within the UK, the government should give assurances that it won't implement any system on vaccine passports until everyone has been offered a jab. I don't think they have to wait till everyone's had one. But I think while you're trying to ration out the jabs and ask people to be patient and follow the rules to also make it your invitation to, you know, your passport to a good time is really divisive and corrosive. I think they should also make sure they don't lean into the temptation to use emergency rules to bring this in. This deserves proper public and parliamentary debates because it's quite a big change to our society and to our norms. And I think the government should expect and not do its usual act against judges if this gets challenged at the High Court or at Judicial Review, because it is a a big new imposition for the state if it starts demanding that people, you know, have their bodies injected with something they don't want to be able to participate in society. I really, really want everyone to get this vaccine, but I don't think we help that by forcing people into it that starts to feel too invasive to me and at some point you know we've lived through a year-long emergency now at some point we do want the state to shrink back again and for our civil liberties to come back.
1: Do you think they can come back once we've got a vaccine passport in place?
3: I think the vaccine passport would be a new settlement that would be less liberal and have less freedom than the old one Now, it may be as a society we decide for a time that's necessary. We certainly, I think, will need some form of document that enables us to travel to countries that require vaccine passports. I don't think that will be the new permanent deal. I don't think that's the world people want to live in. And I think it is a regressive backward step to that kind of world of the 90s where we're all sort of policing foreigners for disease, which does feel a sort of smaller and colder place
1: james Bull, thank you very much for joining us thank you next this week wolfgang Munchau writes about Nord Stream 2 it's the gas pipeline due to run from russia to germany and in germany it's seen as the solution to the country's energy problems and the americans see it quite differently wolfgang joins me now together with kadri leek a senior policy fellow at the european council on foreign relations Wolfgang, for listeners who might be not so familiar with the subject, can you start by explaining why the pipeline Nord Stream 2 is causing such a fuss right now?
4: Well, the pipeline Nord Stream 2 transports gas or is to transport gas from Russia to Germany, bypassing the normal channels, which are the normal pipelines, the existing pipelines, which go through Ukraine. The reason why the United States is worried about uh, Nord Stream and other European countries too is because it makes Germany dependent on Russian gas. In fact, even more dependent than it already is. Germany is already a big buyer of Russian gas and oil, but the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will increase that dependency to a fairly significant degree. The U.S. position is that this energy dependence on Russia is a security threat. And therefore the Americans are saying that this pipeline must be stopped and the US Congress has passed legislation with a bipartisan majority. It has passed legislation to impose sanctions on companies that are involved in this project. So this is a very big concern for the Americans. In fact, it is probably at the moment the biggest transatlantic issue in the bilateral relationship between the EU and and the US, in addition to the usual trade trade differences that normally come up on you know, air, aircraft and airlines and that kind of thing that we always have. But this is a very serious issue. The new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he actually mentioned it in his confirmation hearings and saying that he wants to stop it. In my conversations with American officials, I get the you know, people express the hope to me that, that they want to stop and they are very confident that they will stop it and the germans are very keen for the americans not to stop it uh, so the, the the germans want this pipeline they are, you know i'd say they're desperate for this pipeline because it's you know it's it's the centerpiece of german russian relationship and whatever happens otherwise for example the imprisonment of navalny in russia the germans are not happy about that but they don't want to let that come in the way go in the way of the... Of that sort of commercial relationship they have with putin and this week the German president frank walter Steinmeier uh, said that Germany owed this pipeline to Russia because of the second world war so the Germans are playing hardball on this, and you know ninety five percent of that pipeline is completed five percent have yet to be have yet to be uh, done and the pipeline has yet to be certified that there, every, you know, pipelines require very intensive safety certification. So the Americans think they can stop it at this late stage so it's kind of a race against the time if they you know if they can complete it and if they find a way to circumvent the us sanctions maybe they can you know they can get the gas going and I, you know if they can they will that is certainly my assessment but it's not clear that they can because the us sanctions have been very effective and discouraged various suppliers and certifiers and insurance companies to uh, to pull out of the project so it's become uh, more difficult for them
1: Kadri, do you think the Americans are right to see Nord Stream 2 as a security threat?
0: To be honest, I'm not sure. I maybe must clarify that I'm a bit of a heretic when it comes to uh, Nord Stream 2. Uh, I come from Estonia and, and most of the people there would, would, would be against it because they distrust Russia and its intentions. But my own thinking goes a little bit in a different direction. I mean, first, how much more dependent will it make Germany? You know, Estonia buys 100% of its gas from, from Russia. However, it can switch to other fuels overnight. So none of its gas is, is crucial uh, to heat homes. There are always alternatives. And that makes one safe in the way that Russia cannot use it for political ends. And I think that should be the aspiration to uh, Germany and Europe as well. If Europe manages to transform its gas market so that gas is freely tradable inside Europe, and for that you need interconnectors and east-west and west-east flows, and west-east is where we have limited capacity at the moment, and you need alternatives that you could use at short notice if need be. That could be either uh, alternative gas suppliers via other pipelines or LNG hubs, or it could be other fuels that can replace gas if if and as needed. In that case, actually, uh, you wouldn't be I mean dependent on, on Russian gas in any uh, bad way, even if you end up buying uh, quite a lot of it. So uh, to me, Nord Stream 2 is, is first and foremost relationship management question, I, I think. I think it would be bad for Europe if Nord Stream gets cancelled because of brutal American pressure that would then be chaired by Poland, but that would leave Germany feel... It has been ignored and beaten uh, and neglected. It would likewise be quite bad for Europe if it goes ahead bulldozing Poland's thinking in the process and leaving southern European countries in feeling cheated because you know Italy lost South Stream and now it sees Germany going ahead with with North Stream. That would also be bad. what I wish Germany to do, they should really try to invest a little bit more in in relationships around it and try to carve out a way out. Uh, because the way I feel it here in Berlin, I feel establishment is not happy with Nord Stream. It's the sort of uh, suitcase without a handle. They they cannot it abandon it anymore, but it's it's terribly inconvenient. So they are a little bit stuck with it. And myself, it's probably wishful thinking, but I I paid attention to the phone call between Angela Merkel and, and Joe Biden that touched, among other things, upon Nord Stream and there was some sort of intention to discuss it further. And Merkel said that we should take into account all aspects of it. What should be the end goal? Should it be zero gas trade with Russia? And I think she's very right to ask these long-term questions. So, you know, in my ideal world, the two of them, United States and Germany, should come into agreement that takes into account everything. You know, the uh, implications in Russia, how, how much linkage varies between Navalny and Nord Stream. Can we expect that stopping Nord Stream will make Moscow to release Navalny or take a different approach towards human rights issues in general. I would say no, but but that's up for debate. You know what sort of leverage do we expect Nord Stream to exercise over Russian thinking and policy making and geopolitical priorities in the future? What's the future of gas trade in general? Is it going to happen in pipelines or via LNG? LNG would make it much more freely marketable. And you know, all that finalizing with Green Deal. We we want to get out of hydrocarbons at one point. So if you could sort of come up with a comprehensive strategy agreed by Germany and America, that would actually be a way of healing Europe's differences as well. How I'm not sure it's going to happen, though. <laughs>
1: Wolfgang, in your piece, you, you talk about the Sputnik vaccine, and, and you say that whilst the Sputnik vaccine and the pipeline are obviously separate issues, you sort of see them as being linked. Can you explain how exactly?
4: Well, the link is, uh, is that if Germany relies on the sputnik vac- vaccine as a for health strategy then it can hardly boycott the pipeline and therefore you know the there is a there is a sort of a moral link and you know the germans office have framed this in or in, in partly also in terms of a moral at least the president has, has, has framed it in terms of a moral question so so the, the linkage is there there is dependency and you know, unlike Estonia, Germany cannot switch that simply because Germany has a very heavy industry, a fairly inflexible domestic market. It can switch and will switch over over long long periods of time. This is a transitional issue. The idea is that eventually, Germany will have alternative energy supplies, but for a, a protracted period, Germany will be dependent on Russian energy. That is the uh, the the reality of that. You know, what I could see happening in a bilateral uh, agreement between Merkel and Biden is that they come to some kind of a deal where Germany uses Russian gas, but perhaps not in the volumes that um, the original contract allows. The question then becomes, is, is the pipeline still viable? Does Germany have to pay compensation? Could be a very expensive solution. So, and it would make you know this whole thing less less viable. So, the you know, finding a compromise between this, these positions is not very is not very easy, and I I say so I'm I'm fairly certain that the Americans are determined to stop this, and therefore uh, therefore they will not easily you know reach sort of a halfway house agreement because you know the Russia, if you also look at the domestic political context in the United States, and Trump has been fairly open to Russia. He has had private deals with Putin. There have been always these allegations about the Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential elections. Biden's taking a very strong position on Russia. And therefore, one would uh, assume that you know, he would not let his main ally in Europe cut a deal that his party more even more so than the republicans but his party has been bitterly opposed and it's quite quite a thing for america to pass an act uh you know it's this thing is called the protecting the energy security in europe act and uh, you know this is an act to try to really try to uh, make europe independent of one one supplier it is an extraordinary act of Interference in another country's, um, you know, sovereignty, and I agree. If 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 the Americans prevail, Germany will be very bitter. That, that I have no doubt. And and if Germany prevails, you know, there will be Europeans who will be very bitter, and um, you know, Poland in particular. And it will probably cool the U.S.-EU relationship beyond anything what we've seen so far. And the question about U.S. the future of U.S. engagement in Europe. Uh, U.S. engagement in NATO, all these questions will come up again.
1: Kadri, just finally, from your position in Berlin, what, what what's the sort of view on the ground in terms of how Germans are seeing this American interference?
0: Uh, obviously, they, they don't like American interference. And... Um, and who would, if, if someone is trying to dictate policies from the position of, of, of strength. But I think, I mean, German thinking is also complicated and many people say that Germany is putting short-term business needs ahead of everything else. I don't see that at all, actually. I think, okay, there might be, of course, there yeah, some constituencies who think in short-term business needs. I would rather see that there are long-term tendency, uh, long-term thinking, different strands of long-term thinking competing here. Because you know it's it's actually hard to abandon Nord Stream too. It legally it predates third energy package, you cannot apply that legislation on it. It's it's hard to get out of it. And you know, being a country who follows up on its legal obligations is a long term interest sort of reputation you build up and and maintain so i don't i don't blame Germany that they uh, that they want to stick to it and likewise there is a certain belief that if we if we have interactions with Russia it could work as as leverage. I must admit that Evidence to support it is, is mixed. Bring another Estonian example. Russia imposed sanctions on Estonia in, sometime in the 1990s to punish it for its policies. And then Russia has that sort of interagency coordination round where all interested institutions were asked what they think of the idea, Gazprom was against. Gazprom said, we see no reason to impose sanctions. Estonia always pays in time, in proper hard currency. We have no issues with Estonia, don't punish them. They punished anyway. So, you know, Gazprom might have its political views. It might have its agenda, which might be pro-European, but it's not to be taken for granted that it prevails in intra-Russian policymaking or that these business interests somehow translate into more Western-friendly or Europe-friendly or German-friendly Russian policies. However, I think just sort of sacrificing it without thinking through the full implications would also be very Hasty. So I have I have definitely sympathies towards German position, and I've also been impressed how actually after annexation of Crimea, the sort of principled stance vis-à-vis has carried the day. And instead of business interests taking over and and carrying the policy, it's been vice versa. Businesses have been following policymakers. And it's also a myth that everyone in Germany wants to abolish sanctions vis-à-vis Russia. It's not so simple at all. I've been talking with businesses who operate in Moscow and they would say that, you know, whatever you do, don't allow European sanctions to collapse in an uncontrolled manner because then each country would have their own sanctions regime against Russia and for us it would be a nightmare to cope with that. So I find German debate fascinating and far from one-sided as it certainly is sometimes depicted. Thank you, Wolfgang, and
1: thank you, Kadri. And finally... Chess is a game that has long been popular worldwide, but as Luke McShane, the spectator's chess correspondent, writes in this week's magazine, the combination of lockdown and the TV show The Queen's Gambit has given it a new renaissance. Luke joins me now, together with the chess content creator, Fiona Stelantoni. Luke, in this week's issue, you write about how attitudes to chess have changed in recent months. Can you explain what exactly you've seen happening
5: uh, well a lot has a lot has changed i think it started with well the beginning of the pandemic when lockdown became prevalent across you know a large part of the world and uh chess was already online so it wasn't completely out of the blue but of course you know huge numbers of people were were, were looking for things to do and a lot of them turned to chess because it's it's really one of the kind of most accessible things you you can do and some of those people are playing. It's very easy to get started playing chess online. And some of those people, I think, I think most people come to the game through wanting to play. But other people, people who've who've started to get interested in the game, have found that there's a lot to follow in terms of you know the the, the world's best players, some of the personalities involved in the game, and they, you know, I think they've found that there's a there's a, there's a whole world out there to become interested in. So that was given um, a big boost with The Queen's Gambit, the, the, the Netflix series, towards the end of last year.
1: Fiona, tell us, did you watch The Queen's Gambit? And do you think that that is responsible for this big surge in interest in chess?
6: Yeah, I, I watched it. I, I enjoyed it greatly. I think it's always different when you watch it as a chess player rather than just, you know, someone who doesn't know about the game. But I think for sure, I mean, I'm a chess dreamer, among other things, and I've seen such an influx of new people coming to the game. and. And I think the the timing of it, the pandemic and the Queen's Gambit at the same time, it's just made for a huge, huge boom.
1: And can you explain to listeners who might be unfamiliar with your work, what exactly it is that you do as a chess streamer and a chess content creator?
6: Yeah, so basically being a, a content creator allows me to share my passion uh, for chess with with anyone. So what I do is people can watch me play chess uh, in real time. They can, they can challenge me, they can play against me, but they can also interact. So there's a, a live chat and uh, and streamers basically it builds communities of, of people who, who enjoy the game, but they can also make friends through watching uh, big content creators play chess and they can play against each other. And, and it's just a lot of fun. It's a fun way of bringing chess to the crowd.
1: Luke, in your piece, you talk a little bit about what life was like before lockdown and before the Queen's Gambit. And you talk about the um, grunge and glamour of the chess scene. Can can you explain to listeners a little bit about what what it was like before before lockdown?
5: Yeah, well, I've uh, been playing chess, you know, more or less all my life. And I think one of the things which the Queen's Gambit really brought across to people was kind of the variety that you get in the chess world and that's variety in in all senses sort of one one minute they're you know playing in a uh rather unglamorous setting uh, an old sports hall or, or or something like that and uh the next minute they're jetting off to some fancy hotel on the other side of the world and uh, and i think that very much kind of rings true for people uh involved in in the chess world and and kind of along alongside that variety that you get is also one of the things which has kept me interested in and loving the game for so long is that uh, you meet all kinds of different people in those in those different worlds. That there, there really is a quite amazing variety of, of personalities. There are there are certainly some some, some big egos in, involved in chess, but also you know there are a lot of people who who just you know love the game deeply and uh, and enjoy enjoy sharing that with other people. So it, it really is a, you know a great variety.
1: And Fiona, from your channel, it's, it's obvious that your passion is very deep for chess. C- can you explain to listeners why you love the game so much?
6: Yeah, I think a lot of it relates to what Luke was just saying. You know, I started playing as a child, like a lot of people and then growing up, uh, you know, you meet all those people and you go to all these tournaments. Of course, my career now, I focus more on the, the content creation side, but I used to to play uh, primarily. and the fact that you get to to travel the world and meet all these people. And I think the Queen's Gambit has also shown some light on, it isn't just about the chess, there's also the social aspect. And I've made so many, you know, lifelong friendships uh, in chess and, and I think it's a lot more fun than a lot of people uh, realised before.
1: And Luke, you also talk in your piece about how the internet has changed the style of chess. What, what seems to have changed most?
5: I think the game is getting faster. Chess used to be played at, uh, well, the uh, the perception of chess was that it uh, used to be played, you know, at a very sedate pace, and that type of chess certainly still exists but more and more the the interest is in chess which is played much faster one of the other big changes is that uh, nowadays you can get basically instant feedback about you know whether moves are good or bad so if you watch a game in in real time you will find out you know if somebody makes a catastrophic blunder people will know instantly and that uh, i think completely changes the Relationship that people had to the game. I think back in some some decades ago, and and still while while I was growing up, there was a sort of perception that grandmasters were somewhat infallible, and that's just not true. Which um, it, it makes it very exciting to watch when you when you don't know what is about to happen, what what blunders are about to be made. I think that is kind of really change change people's perception of, of the game a lot and that brings a lot of interest for people uh watching watching live games i think that's uh that's that's been a big thing
1: and fiona for people listening who might not yet play chess and might be interested in, in starting to play what's what's your advice for beginners
6: well, I think there's so much material out there these days on the internet. Back in the day, you know, you would have to buy these big books and these magazines. But these days, there's so many uh, free resources out there. So you can head to YouTube. There's so many uh, content creators which make content which is beginner friendly, which is fun. Uh, so people can check that out. I think the internet and if they want to play, they can head to one of the three big websites uh, chess.com, Lee chess or Chess24 and uh, speaking of Chess.com, actually in a couple of days from now, there's the the POC Champs is starting, which is an an online tournament, which is for beginner players, but not just any beginner players. It's for famous content creators. And one of the players who will be playing is Mr. Beast, who is one of the biggest YouTube creators out there, maybe the biggest, so that's going to be fun fun to follow and i think that also will show people you know because usually when you follow online chess it's all these grandmasters, the best players in the world and it's it's hard to understand what is going on and to follow their uh, their thought process but i think the prog chimes uh, have done a great job breaking that down
1: and just finally i have to ask have you two ever played each other
6: <laughs> it's a good question maybe at a fun game never an official game i don't think but we might have You know, in the evening, there's a lot of socializing. There's a lot of playing fun games in the evening, sometimes even in pairs. Maybe Luke will remember better than I do. No, I think
5: that's right. I think that's right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Luke and Fiona, thank you very much for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. And if you'd like to read more of Luke's columns on chess, you can find them all on the Spectator website. And that's everything this week. If you pick up a copy of the week's issue you can read everything we've talked about as well as more from Justin Welby and Stephen Cottrell on the future of the Church of England Dorian Linsky on the dysfunctional creators of the Marvel characters and Julie Birchall who asks where have all the lesbians gone? We've also got a special subscription offer we're about to reach our 100,000th subscriber which is a special moment in our long history if you subscribe today you may become our hundred thousand subscriber and if you are You'll win a prize worth £5,000, including a year's supply of Paul Roger champagne and a ticket to our summer party. We'll also send all new subscribers this week a commemorative tote bag. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash milestone to be in with a chance of becoming our 100,000th subscriber. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.